Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Henry Kissinger, just a mere mention of the name can make eyes roll and spark debate. On the one hand, he's won the Nobel Peace Prize, he's been Time Man of the Year, and he helped thaw US-China relations, opening China to the world. Yet on the other hand, he's seen by some as a war criminal, a ruthless political operator, and as someone who has supported human rights violations time and time again all around the world. So who is the real Henry Kissinger? This is the Warfare Podcast. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. And as Kissinger turns 100 years old, yes, he is still alive, I've invited the historian and world-leading Kissinger expert, Thomas Swartz, onto the podcast. Thomas is a professor at Vanderbilt University in the US and the author of Henry Kissinger and American Power, a political biography. And it's from his first-hand research that we get unparalleled insight into Kissinger, a man who has shaped a century. Hi, Tom. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing? Are you all set for the summer? Um, as much as you can be in Nashville. Basically, that means sort of getting into air conditioning since it's so darn hot here. But that's another story. Where in the world are you based? I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Vanderbilt University uh, is the premier university in Tennessee and are in the state capital here in Nashville. Oh, wonderful. I love Nashville. Music City, the home of the Johnny Cash <laughs> yes. Museum in memory of one of America's most iconic figures. But, um, well, I guess, Tom, I guess we're not here to talk about, about Johnny Cash, the man in black today, but we are here to talk about a different iconic figure, perhaps as famous in the United States or infamous, depending on who you ask. And this is Secretary Henry Kissinger, who turns 100 years old this month. Now, I've got to confess, Tom, I, I did meet Kissinger a couple of years ago, back in 2018. And he was very wow. much the, yep. the wise old man of the room, mm -hmm. warning about increased tensions and conflict in Ukraine. And, you know, he wasn't mm -hmm. wrong. But there appears to be many Henry Kissingers. There's the war criminal, but also the Nobel Peace Prize winner and the wily political operator. So why is there so much uncertainty about who Kissinger really is? And was it this uncertainty, Tom, that first drew you to research his life and his work? Well, yes, I used a metaphor that the famous political scientist Hans Morgenthau once used in describing Kissinger as a polytropus, a person of many forms. And Morgenthau used that to express the reason why Kissinger seemed to be able to deal with the Israelis and the Arabs 
at a time when this was seen as unprecedented, that he could conduct negotiations in this manner and seem to sympathize and empathize with both sides, but at the same time pursue the interests of the United States in some type of peace settlement in the Middle East. I think your reference to the different types of Kissingers also talks to the sheer length of his career. If you think about it, he first burst into public prominence with his bestseller, Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy, in 1957. And there are few wow. careers in American history that span that much time. And that's simply more than six-decade career in the public spotlight in one manner or another. That's almost unprecedented. And in that sense, no wonder there are many Kissingers in what people think of him. I think that makes perfect sense. We all change over the years. Our points of view, our political views might change, and we all change with the experience of time. So take us back in this long, century-long history of Henry Kissinger himself. Take us back to his birth. Where was he born? What sort of family was he born into? Kissinger was born into a middle-class German-Jewish family, in the city of Firth, which is in Bavaria, northern Bavaria, not far from Nuremberg itself. He was born in 1923. He was born in the midst of the great inflation in Germany during that time. His father was a school teacher, and that was more prestigious in Germany than it is in many other countries. His mother was a former student of his father and was a homemaker, or also did lots of practical things as well. Kissinger grew up in Germany in the 1920s. Of course, the most important moment in his early life was the coming to power of the Nazis in January of 1933. His father lost his job. The family was increasingly isolated within the town. Kissinger could not go to the normal public schools. He had to go to a Jewish, special Jewish school. He and his brother, Walter, experienced some of the early signs of, of discrimination and the, they're bicycling through towns that had signs that says Jews were not wanted there. Finally, in 1938, Kissinger's mother, who really took charge of the family, her, his father fell into a type of depression after losing his job. Kissinger's mother arranged for their immigration to the United States where they had some relatives and they, they were able to leave Germany before the worst of the persecution, although Kissinger would lose some 13 members of his family in the Holocaust. That's incredible to learn, and it's almost too obvious to say it must have been as a result of this and during this period that Kissinger starts to get politically active, politically motivated. Actually, no, in many respects, although I think it, that that might seem obvious. Kissinger comes to the United States as an immigrant. He goes to George Washington High School in Manhattan. He does well for an immigrant, uh, although one of his lowest grades was in history. He actually thought he was going to be an accountant. The great transformative experience for Henry Kissinger was the fact he was drafted into the American Army, 1943, where he acquired both his citizenship and he was recognized in a special army program that selected uh, men of high IQ for special training. And Kissinger received some of this and it began to shift his outlook, making him seem and realize that he was far more select in many respects. And he ended up becoming an interpreter for a key army colonel in a regiment that went over to the, uh, Europe in 1944. He was stuck during the Battle of the Bulge and actually performed quite heroically during that period. He then became an intelligence officer and was involved in the occupation of Germany. 
And so the, the arc of his career from refugee then to occupier is fascinating. And I think that's transformed his sense of expectations and understanding about what he would do in life. There's a famous story of one of his mentors at the time, Fritz Kramer, saying to him when he had applied to colleges that no gentleman goes to CCNY, which is where Kissinger would have normally gone, but encouraged him to apply to Harvard, where he was admitted in 1947 and began studies. I see. I mean, for him to have left Germany, having to flee Nazi oppression, and then to have gone back to liberate the country itself, that must have been, like you say, that political motive, that push to take him into politics. When was it that he first started to take his first steps on the political ladder? I think the clearest indication of that comes as his career evolves at Harvard. He writes a massive undergraduate thesis called The Meaning of History, which was 300 plus pages long and led to the famous Kissinger Rule at Harvard, which limited undergraduate theses to 100 pages. He's admitted to the political science or government department for a PhD, studying under William Yandel Elliott. And Elliott was an interesting figure itself. Kissinger had a series of mentors in his career. I've mentioned Fritz Kramer, but there's also Elliott as well. Elliott was something of a talent scout. Elliott recognized that Kissinger had talent and he almost immediately put him in charge of various activities that Elliot himself had. One was editing a journal that invited European intellectuals to comment on current politics and issues. He also put him in charge of the Harvard Summer School program, which invited talented Europeans and then later Asians, Africans, Latin Americans to come to Harvard for summer school, which evolved, ultimately led to the fact that Kissinger had an extraordinary network of former students that he had encountered in these summer school sessions at Harvard. But the real moment came in 1955 when Kissinger was in a meeting with the famous a figure that's no longer as well-known in the United States, but Governor Nelson Rockefeller of New York, or, or Nelson Rockefeller of New York. He hadn't become governor yet. Rockefeller was someone who had political ambitions, wanted to be president. And Kissinger rather quickly impressed Rockefeller and attached his own star to Rockefeller's rise, and he would be Rockefeller's advisor in the three political moments, 1960, 64, and 68, when Rockefeller tried to become president. But I see that as the moment in which Kissinger really decided he was going to not only be an academic, but also have a foot in the public affairs area of life. I see. So it was in that fertile environment of Harvard where he was able to meet endless amounts of influential people, but also to be pushed by those behind him who thought that he was a talent, and then to latch on to someone that was seeking one day to be president. And I'm assuming as a Rockefeller had a little bit of money behind him, it was this that <laughs> propelled him yes. into the higher yes. echelons of power. What was his, his first position? Because he got into the White House relatively early on in his career. Well, interestingly enough, his book, the famous book that was the bestseller, Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy, and that really triggered something of a national debate about American security strategy, came out in 57. When I was at the Eisenhower Library, I found documents that made it clear the president was briefed on the book, that Vice President Nixon also read it. So he was already becoming a figure of, of some national renown. He appeared on Mike Wallace, uh, the famous CBS News commentator, had a program of interviews. And there's a famous interview you can find on the Internet of Henry Kissinger in July of 1958, talking about American foreign policy and issues but his first real position comes with the Kennedy administration. Um, Kissinger, in that interview with Wallace, 
described himself as an independent, as someone who was not partisan. It wasn't completely a true statement, as with many things with Kissinger, it shaded the truth a bit. He had this association with Rockefeller, but he was still seen as someone who somehow straddled the Republican and Democratic parties, and that was an expert on foreign relations. And so in 1961, he goes to Washington on a part-time position as an advisor on issues related to both defense and to the situation of Germany. And that's his first real position in power. I see. And is he appointed to that, obviously, based off the back of his work, which has had great policy impact, but also his, his language, his cultural experience, and that period of serving during the Second World War? Absolutely, yes. The person who appoints him, or at least supervises his appointment, is McGeorge Bundy, who is the dean of Harvard College, the national security advisor, and who hired Kissinger in the first place, or who promoted him to his professorship at Harvard. So there's a connection there, although Bundy doesn't fully trust Kissinger because he knows of the Rockefeller attachment. And so Kissinger's experience in the Kennedy administration, while very interesting, ultimately was very frustrating to him, as he was ultimately let go in 1962, and was rather unhappy about the overall experience. I mean, it is interesting because when I've researched that period, I don't see any mention of Kissinger included in Kennedy's brain trust, and he isn't brought into a major role within the Kennedy administration. Instead, it's Albert Wallstatter's acolytes that are brought in from the Rand Corporation or Archibald Cox's group of scholars that are brought in from the brain trust, and it's those that are pulled in to take positions of power within the Kennedy White House. And that must have been greatly frustrating to Kissinger. Actually, I remember I was in the Yale archives and I was reading papers between Albert Wallstatter, who was the great nuclear strategist and RAND think tank researcher who came up with the delicate balance of power and so many other pieces of work. And they didn't seem to get on too well. I can imagine that in the wake of Kissinger's rise, there must have been many who didn't really like him. (laughs) Yes, Kissinger ran into this. Um, He could be abrasive. He could be difficult. Bundy did not fully trust him and felt that he was not totally reliable on issues outside of Germany. The Kennedy administration sought to use him mostly as an intermediator with Adenauer, Konrad Adenauer, the German chancellor, and they sent him to speak to Adenauer frequently in the first two years with the idea that he could sell Adenauer on Kennedy's policy, uh, which Adenauer is not very happy with. So Kissinger, I think, felt himself used, somewhat abused by the way in which he was treated and ultimately then left unhappy. He was never able to achieve a very significant influence of the Kennedy period. Well, it doesn't take long before he does start to achieve significant influence because as soon as Nixon comes to power, well, this appears to be uh, in in many ways a a match made in heaven. (laughs) In many respects, it's a very unusual match. After all, Kissinger had worked for Nixon's great rival, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, in 1968. He was quoted as describing Nixon as unsuitable for the presidency. If Richard Nixon had had the same ego problems that Donald Trump had, he would never have sought out Henry Kissinger. He would have rejected that idea. But Nixon respected Kissinger's intelligence. He respected his work. And he knew that Kissinger had also been deeply involved in Vietnam negotiations under the Johnson administration. Kissinger came back to work with Lyndon Johnson and was involved in some of the peace initiatives that the Johnson administration launched with Vietnam in 1967-68. Nixon knew of all these things and I think for that reason was interested in tapping into Kissinger's networks and also his ability. 
Well, it is lucky that Nixon didn't have that sort of ego because am I right in thinking that Kissinger and Nixon were jointly named the Time Magazine's Men of the Year in 1972? This is Kissinger sharing the title with a president. Oh, that so irritated Nixon. But yes, indeed, you're right. Kissinger tried to get time to change it to just Nixon because he knew how angry Nixon would be by being paired with Kissinger in that manner. But indeed, yes, they would become joined at the hip in so many ways. In my own work, in my research, in my book, I describe this relationship as one in which essentially Richard Nixon creates the figure of Henry Kissinger by endowing him with enormous responsibilities and, in fact, making him his number one advisor. In that sense, he's responsible for the degree to which Henry Kissinger becomes associated with the policies of the Nixon administration. Airplanes, spacesuits, condoms, coffee, plastic surgery, warships. Over on the patented podcast by History Hit, we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own. We uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects. We managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases. Unpack invention myths. So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time, can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress. You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is it during the Nixon years that you think that Kissinger had his greatest success? Because 
it's during this period that he does jointly hold the Nobel Peace Prize for having jointly negotiated a ceasefire in Vietnam in 1973. When you look through Kissinger's career, which you've done in so much depth, do you think that this was his crowning glory, his greatest success? His greatest success is actually, I would argue, is in the Middle East, where he was able to carve out a different position for the United States, particularly to accede to Anwar Sadat's desire to change the terms in the Middle East to align with the United States. And Kissinger's role there ultimately was far more constructive and durable than what he did in Vietnam, where he hardly, he got a ceasefire, it didn't last very long, and then two years later, the North Vietnamese conquered South Vietnam. His role in the Middle East was far more long-lasting. Ultimately, Jimmy Carter would then build on Kissinger's agreements between Egypt and Syria to negotiate the Camp David agreements, and subsequent presidents would build on this manner, all the way up, you could argue, to the Abraham Accords under Donald Trump. So the Middle East was far more an area of constructive accomplishment. Now, the other area that, of course, is often looked at is the opening to China. And for many years, the opening to China was seen as Kissinger's overall achievement. It's much more controversial now, but it was seen as absolutely crucial. And uh, there's a famous moment in the 2016 debates between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, where she mentions her relationship with Kissinger in a very positive light because of his work in China, only to have Bernie Sanders condemn her for associating in that manner with Kissinger. Yeah, it's certainly a rocky road to be associated with Kissinger. You've got to choose when to play that card, I'm sure. But I think it's fair to say that Kissinger's successes do continue to have quite powerful legacies into the contemporary period today, but so too do his controversies. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, Kissinger to many is quite purely and unreservedly a war criminal, whether that's because of his support for bombing in Cambodia or his support for Pakistan while it was committing crimes against the people of Bangladesh or supporting the overthrow of leaders around the world, such as in Chile. What do you think is his biggest controversy? It's hard to describe what would be the biggest controversy. In my own book, my own judgment is that his errors on Chile were probably the most significant mistake that he makes as national security advisor, that in that sense, he and Nixon, I think, executed a policy that was really at odds with America's national interests. The other circumstances you're talking about are far more complicated. For example, the role with Pakistan, the United States' role there, the support for Pakistan was regrettable, but was also connected to the opening with China. Pakistan had served as the intermediary with China, and in some of the key moments there, Nixon and Kissinger did not want to endanger that relationship as a part of their attempt to open negotiations with China. Cambodia is also difficult in the sense that these were Nixon's orders, and the bombing in Cambodia was directed against North Vietnamese soldiers who occupied eastern Cambodia. It was not an indiscriminate carpet bombing of the country as a whole. It was directed at specific military formations that were challenging American soldiers. So I don't see that as a particular war crime. I don't see any of these actually as war crimes as much as policy mistakes and errors. And the bombing in Cambodia, has it gone down in history as an illegal bombing? Would you make that judgment? I mean, it was certainly secret. Was it passed by Congress, this expansion of, of, over the border with Vietnam? And of course, we know when we look through history, it was very hard to define the borders of Vietnam and to define the borders of that war. Incredibly difficult, especially when you look as you 
push up to China or across to Laos and Cambodia. It's hard to constrain a war into a specific geographical area. Just look in the war in Ukraine. At the moment, we can see that missiles are flying over into, into Poland, actually where I'm sat right now. It's easy to escalate these things. So when we look back at that period, is it fair that Kissinger is blamed for these things? Is there a certain element that it could have been done better? I think, yes. I think it could have been done better in that I think the Nixon administration should have been more direct with the American people in saying that we are bombing Cambodia because there are North Vietnamese bases there. The secret involved in that, I think, was the fear of igniting public opinion by taking that military action. And one thing I think that is characteristic of the period in time Nixon and Kissinger were in office was their fear of the power of the anti-war movement and the demonstrations and the rest that had protested the war in Vietnam. Now, Nixon and Kissinger wanted to end the war, but they wanted to end it on their terms. They wanted to end it with the survival of South Vietnam, at least for the time being, as an independent state. That probably was unlikely, but they sought that goal. And I think if they had been more direct on the initial bombing of Cambodia, they could have headed off a lot of the argument about war crimes or illegal elements. Because in fact, of course, North Vietnam had already violated Cambodia's neutrality, and the United States then also engaged in violating that neutrality. And it's that lack of transparency, that political wrangling, and you could go as far to say those lies for the American people. It's not like Nixon's gone down in history as, as much as a truth teller that have defined the darker side of Kissinger, I would guess. But you make this point about China. Now, I was listening to John Mearsheimer talk the other day, the IR theorist, and he was stating how, you know, when you look at the history of the rise and fall of great powers, there are very few occasions, you can think of it with Britain and America, where there has been a kind of a deliberate handover almost, or a leg up to the country that is going to take over as a global hegemon. But when it comes to the America and the United States, it is America that opens China up to the world. What is Kissinger's thinking behind this? Well, this is thinking straight out of the Cold War. You have to remember that the Cold War for the early period, found the United States engaged against what was called the Sino-Soviet bloc, this notion that there was a monolithic communism directed from Moscow and with the full acquiescence of Beijing that threatened the United States. The United States had fought Chinese soldiers in Korea. China seemed to threaten Asia during this period. Chinese-sponsored insurgencies were in countries like Malaysia and Indonesia and Thailand. So in that sense, China was seen as a part of this overall communist threat. What Kissinger and Nixon sought to do and recognized was that China and the Soviet Union had begun to split. The split became somewhat evident in the late 1950s with arguments between Mao and Khrushchev over whether peaceful coexistence was a proper strategy. The Chinese were more radical at that time. They were more determined to attack the United States and American sponsored interests around the world. The Soviet Union was more interested in peaceful coexistence. Well, as the 60s developed, the tensions between the Soviet Union and China grew, so much so that in March of 1969, they fought a border war up in northeastern China over the Amur River, in which a significant number of Russians and Chinese soldiers were killed. Uh, that conflict continued in the West, in, the, in Xi'an province as well in August. So there was real concern that the Soviet Union and China might go to war. Two nuclear powers uh, at the time might go to war. 
What Kissinger and Nixon recognized was that splitting off China from the Soviet Union gave the United States a diplomatic advantage, so-called triangular diplomacy, where the United States could have better relations with the Soviet Union and China than either had with each other, and that, in the sense, this played to Kissinger's notion of a balance of power, that he could use China, or the so-called China card, as a way of inhibiting the Soviet Union and Soviet adventurism in the world. So it's strictly out of Cold War issues that you get the opening to China. So it was all about trying to split what was then called the Sino-Soviet bloc and hand more power to America while taking increased influence away from the Soviet Union. And if we look at some of the legacies of that and the legacies of Kissinger himself, we can say that even post-Nixon era and, and through various presidencies where he maintained an influential role, well, his influence has carried on over the decades. I mean, he was appointed by President George W. Bush to lead a national commission on terrorist attacks on the United States, the 9-11 commission. After 9-11, there couldn't have been a bigger commission to lead. He didn't lead it for very long due to the fact that there were conflicts of interest with clients of his consulting firm. And then you mentioned Hillary Clinton saying how close she was to Kissinger to try and give her some credibility. And of course, if I remember correctly, I think even Donald Trump and Kushner floated Kissinger as maybe being Trump's Secretary of State at one point, a man who would have been well into his 90s by this point. So all of this being said, Kissinger maintains his position as an incredible influential figure on American politics. What is it that he thinks of China today? Well, in his recent interview, he spoke of uh, the fact that he believes the United States and China are on a collision course, and that they have five to ten years to work out a relationship that will prevent war and conflict from developing. I think his understanding is that both sides have come to think that the other side is trying to restrict, block them. Americans have come to think China wants to replace them. Chinese leaders think that the United States wants to prevent them from assuming their, their rightful role as a leader, as a world leader, and impose on them the global order the United States has shaped since World War II. So Kissinger's own belief is that the United States and China need to have a strong bilateral relationship, even with the differences in ideology and cultural practices and behavior and political systems. So his, even though he is seen as been very sympathetic to China, I think his recognition, his fear is that we are in a type of pre-World War I situation. And the comparison would be between Britain and Germany. The idea that these are two countries that have interacted with each other, that believe each other threatens their role, but that also have various ties. Britain and Germany had a lot of economic ties before World War I, just as the United States and China have. So I think his hope is that the United States and China can begin and work toward some sort of balance of power that recognizes each as a world leader, but that also avoids conflict and war. And am I right in thinking that Kissinger isn't uninformed on this issue? I mean, of course, he's got the historical precedent to back this up. He was very much involved with China back in the day. But he continues to maintain close ties in China and has the information that kind of informs these opinions that he's putting across now. So would you argue that he is someone that we really do need to listen to on this China issue? Uh, China, absolutely. No, there's no question that Kissinger still enjoys a prestige in China that makes him someone we should listen to. Not necessarily follow in all respects, but certainly listen to, that he has 
an understanding or a sense of the Chinese leadership. He may be, of course, biased in certain ways. Kissinger has always had a preference for talking with elites. He's not as concerned with human rights issues in China as many are in the United States and elsewhere. But I think we need to listen to him on this issue, and particularly on this issue of perceptions and this notion that China, China's own perception of what the United States is doing is something we need to recognize. Uh, we may think we're not threatening China, that we're simply trying to help those countries that are being threatened by China, but it may seem very different to them. Well, Tom, thank you so much for taking us through the good, the bad and the ugly of Henry Kissinger as we mark this 100 years of his time on Earth. And like you say, he continues to be influential today. But how do you think Kissinger will be remembered in the future? That's a very difficult question, and I accept that my answer might not be satisfactory to many. I do think that in a hundred years, again, trying to, to give some perspective, a lot will depend in some ways on the evolution of the international system. If the United States and China really do develop a capacity to share power, in a sense, and if you see an evolution in international relations toward greater stability among the great powers, we're talking now about great power rivalry and conflict, but if in a hundred years the path of history has been more peaceful, I think Kissinger may be seen as prophetic, and that even though I think there will always be criticism of his neglect of human rights issues, I think the larger question of avoiding war and the stability of the international system may be seen in his favor. On the other hand, I think if conflict ensues, I think there may be a harsher verdict about Kissinger, even though in some ways he has also been a, something of a Cassandra and warning us about that possibility. It is really hard to say. I think in many respects, what Kissinger sought to do as a national security advisor and secretary of state was to lessen the danger of nuclear war. And to a certain extent, that's what he did achieve during his time in power. There were certain things he did that were ruthless connected to that, such as in Chile and Pakistan and East Timor, other areas. But I think the larger question of a detente with the Soviet Union and the balance with China, that did lessen the larger risk of war. Now, Kissinger himself now has warned that with artificial intelligence and the development of cyber warfare and the rest, we face a new weapons of mass destruction with China. China is a power different from the Soviet Union in that it has enormous economic strength in a way the Soviets did not have, along with military potential. So in a way, Kissinger is saying we are now in a sort of unprecedented situation which will require leadership to effectively work to avoid conflict, say, over Taiwan or Hong Kong or other issues related to China, and that this leadership will have to achieve that. And I, I think 100 years from now, we'll have a better sense of how that has all worked. As a historian, I know how often perspectives on people change over time. Uh, there are still people arguing about George Washington. There are people arguing about John Quincy Adams, uh, who was Secretary of State back in the early 19th century. So I would not be surprised if Henry Kissinger will be a perpetual source for argument among historians. He will provide a lot of possibilities because 100 years from now, all the papers on his influence after he was Secretary of State will be available and we'll be able to really precisely understand how much he shaped American foreign policy over the last half century. Well, Tom, 
as they say, it's a cliche, but time will tell. And in the meantime, let's direct people to go and read your book to learn more about Henry Kissinger. Tell us, what is the title and where can we buy it? The book is titled Henry Kissinger in American Power, a political biography. It is available on Amazon. It was published by Hill and Wang, or a subsidiary of Farrah Strauss. It came out during the pandemic. And I faced the challenges then of, of Zoom uh, discussions. Uh, there are a number of discussions of the book on C-SPAN and in other forums where I did discuss the book. It is an account, the fundamental part of the book is about Kissinger's own role. I wrote the book as an attempt to use biography to understand American foreign policy and using Kissinger's particular biography and a focus on him as a way of understanding foreign policy. I do try to track his post-government career, although I think that will be the chapter that will be revised over time because the documents are not fully available for any of that. But I did uh, use the tapes. I used the Nixon tapes. I also used the television archive at Vanderbilt to explore Kissinger's role as a celebrity. Kissinger was one of the first secretaries of state to really achieve a celebrity status who played on his role as a unique figure within the Dixon administration, and who became the most admired American from 1973 through 1975 in Gallup polls. I mean, he had an extraordinary visibility as a diplomat. And I try to use the TV archive at Vanderbilt, which has been recording the evening news since 1968, to explore how Kissinger was presented to the American people at a time when there were only three television networks and in which people got their news from television and in which television news was largely trusted by people and not as polarized or polemical as it's seen by some today. So I tried to use these sources, the Nixon tapes, the papers of Kissinger, the materials from the archive to present a fuller picture of Kissinger's rise as a key and fundamental figure. And at the end of the book, I talk about how Kissinger both exercised and symbolized American power. And I'm uh, more and more certain that on that point, I'm right, uh, that he does come, he did come to be a great symbol of American power, which is one of the reasons why he's so controversial. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time. I highly recommend the book because you do something that I thought would be impossible, and that's to look at those controversies to do with Kissinger, but also to look at his successes as well. And you do it so fantastically. And you have enjoyed rave reviews from people far, far greater than me. So I encourage our listeners to go out there and to buy it if you are interested in Kissinger. Tom, thank you again. And you are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me on this program. It's been a great experience. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. 
a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.